When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The vocation we have chosen is a veil of tears. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today with us is J. Robert Lennon. J. Robert Lennon is the author of eight previous novels, including Broken River and Familiar, and three story collections, Let Me Think, Pieces for the Left Hand, and See You in Paradise. He lives in Ithaca, New York. John, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for being here, John. Thank you, Lindsay. I'm really excited about it. Yay. I, I love the podcast, and I love you guys, and I'm very, very glad we could have this conversation. I'm yes. so glad that we can tell you that we love you and we can be Aww. open about that. We love you, bud. We love you too. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to read to us? Well, <laughs> I started in the fall of 2019 what I thought was a short story. Someone had asked me to, uh, uh, a guy I knew was, was uh, guest editing an issue of Granta and asked me for a story. And, this, and the um, subject was membranes. Oh, <laughs> and which I think was a really good topic, but it's one of those things where it could mean nothing or it can mean everything. Um, and I had an I had an idea for something, so I started writing what I sh- thought was going to be a short story, and um, it was eventually published in Granta. But seeing it in the page proofs, it was just very obvious that it was actually the first chapter of a novel. So, how often does that happen to you? Never. Really? Well, no, 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 that's not true. It happened once. Um, my novel Mailman started out as a short story. Mm. Um, but actually, somebody asked me, um, uh, I said yes to this, but um, in, for the AWP that's going to be in Philadelphia next year, if I would like to be on a panel where they talk about this supposed problem of how do you know whether what you're writing is a flash piece or a sh- short story or a novella or a novel or a, or a series of novels, you know? And... Um, I said, sure, that would be great. And it will probably be a good conversation, but I have to admit it's not a real problem. It's like, <laughs> I usually know exactly what I'm writing. It might, I might not finish it or I might be bad, but I know what it's supposed to be. But this right. time I did not. So um, so anyway, I started writing it as a novel and then I had to edit uh, the, the books that have now come out and that I think we'll be talking about later. Um, and then the pandemic started and I had to mm. learn to teach online and then a bunch of stuff happened. And um, so uh, and I, I keep going back to it. But now, finally, literally today, I, I opened up the file for the first <gasps> time in months and I'm going to be working on it through to September. And um, oh, wow, because I just finished a, a book review I'd been assigned. So I have I'm freed up. I cleared off, cleared off my computer desktop. And uh, and this is something I ha- have that I wrote <laughs> and I have not read yes. <laughs> since I wrote it. Ugh. And Give all it, it is, is I, I will say that it was a deeply satisfying writing session. I don't know if it's going to be a deeply satisfying reading session for anyone. <laughs> but all it is, is a highly technical description of a tower. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that, that this guy, he's alone on an island employed by some mysterious agency and he's been asked to repair um, a broken part of the tower. So, and I just grooved so hard on just <laughs> describing this object, um, this complicated object. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Okay. You ready? We're ready. Awesome. All right. The plinth on which the towers stood was almost uncanny in its regularity, precisely level and smooth. It seemed in stony communion with the featureless sea beyond. No safety railing protected me from a fall to the rocks below. I had to be careful. 
The three towers close up were immense. Each stood upon a massive circular slab of three-inch thick steel, at least 20 feet in diameter, which was fastened to the concrete, and probably the bedrock beneath it, by bolts whose heads were the size of automobile tires. From each slab rose three posts of tubular steel connected to each other by a lattice of smaller tubes. The towers narrowed as they rose, presumably to points at the top, but my view of each apex was obstructed by a superstructure of hardware, flat panels, parabolic dishes, drum-like microwave antennae, and other protrusions and extensions of uncertain purpose surrounded by catwalks and ladders. Each tower was also helixed by a narrow steel staircase, one of which I would doubtless soon be climbing and dotted with steel guy plates whose stout wires were anchored to the stony hillside and cement platform, as well as, judging by the ones that plunged into the surf, to the sea floor. It was a relief to see the narrow access stairs. I'd feared I would have to climb a ladder to the top. My concern over identifying the ailing tower also appeared misplaced. A giant black numeral, tall as a man, had been painted on the concrete beside each base plate. Tower one, I could see now, was the farthest from me, occupying the opposite corner of the platform. My breath formed clouds in the cold air as I strode over to it. Gazing up at the tower from the bottom of the stairs induced vertigo. I swooned and gripped the handrail. Reassured by its solidity, I began my climb. I suppose I'd been expecting an effortful journey to the top, but I was surprised at how long it took and how many times I had to stop for a rest. At what I judged to be the halfway point, I arrived at a box-like enclosure built into the area bounded by the three posts. Its steel sides were interrupted by small windows of thick, wire-reinforced glass and a narrow door bearing a small lever. I expected the door to be locked then laughed at myself when it opened easily. Of course, there was no need to lock a door so remote and difficult to access. The door admitted me into a small, triangular room that contained a small steel bench and a wall-mounted utility access panel. Opening the panel revealed a snarl of thick, colored wires patched together via multiple distribution blocks, an electrical and data junction. Electrical work was not my area of expertise, but nothing here looked amiss to me. No obvious disconnects, no discoloration or damage to suggest a short. Of course, if Assistant Director Blythe was to be believed, the wiring was not likely to be the problem. I exited the junction room and continued my climb. I could see down onto the roof of headquarters and was mildly surprised to see that someone had left a chair and small table up there. I hadn't realized it was even possible to reach the roof and made a mental note to do so when the weather was more clement. Perhaps my predecessor visited every now and then to ponder life and take in the scenery. Whatever view he'd enjoyed, though, couldn't compare to the one I beheld now. The towers offered an extraordinary view of the island, its peaks and ridge, the beach and plain, the pier, and the ruins of the village. From here it was possible to discern the ghostly rough-hewn grid of former streets and footpaths that I had previously seen via the control room's display temporal adjustment knob. The most noteworthy feature of this vantage, however, wasn't the island itself, but the vastness and emptiness of the surrounding ocean. I had understood that the island was remote, of course, but only now did I appreciate its profound isolation from the world. In every direction, as far as the eye could see, the water extended to the horizon, undisturbed by any landmass or ocean-going vessel. Sunlight glinted on the waves, but they were so distant as to be indistinguishable. The sea appeared as calm and monolithic as a slab of dark glass. My solitude, always palpable, now felt profound, and for the first time, I doubted the possibility that I might ever meet another human being again. I'll stop there. John, did you write that today? Mm -mm. Okay. <laughs> no, no. No, this is, it was, this is right near the end of what I wrote before several months ago okay before the semester began wow i <laughs> what <laughs> it's so it is so um it is so realized and it is so clear like uh the details are so clear and they are so um they're so fun to listen to and i bet they were really fun to say like yes, the way they were that... fun to say <laughs> yes, yes like the way those, that those the words clear. Yes. Um, well, I will say if I could just, if, if I could get complete satisfaction out of writing and other people could get complete satisfaction out of reading just descriptions of spaces and objects, mm -hmm. that is all I would write. It's like, 
when I realized what I was going to have to do, I like, I opened like six or seven tabs. I, you know, I, I downloaded tons of photos. So I, I, I was going to ask what, you that. Like yes. Every, every part of a, of a radio tower is called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then of course there's impossible technology that you like the temporal adjustment knob is not a real thing. Um, but it is in this book. So I had to invent things that looked, wouldn't seem out of place on a real radio tower, but that corresponded to weird technology. There's more, you know, there's more of it later as he, he does repair the, the broken thing. Um, it turns out a bird died in it. Mm. And there's a, a, a little, he has a little moment of bonding with the spirit of the bird, but, hmm. um, but the but that the the couple of days I spent just meticulously creating this imaginary object was so satisfying. Oh my gosh, I I, I want I want to like I feel like I did see it. I feel like I was watching a good. series of images. Okay, good. But I but now I really want to see it. If if only emotional content were not necessary. <laughs> oh right. For you for you to care about this tower. Here here. John, was your way into subdivision a similar process although you know the world of subdivision may not be as technical uh there definitely is very specific language and uh you know it's a very specific world was it a similar kind of wanting to be in that space wanting to take the reader into that space and then just exist in that world for a while yeah for sure um the where this book came from where subdivision came from was I was giving a reading somewhere near Rochester at a college and they put me up in a bed and breakfast that was run by two uh, retired women. Mm. One of them had been a judge and the other had been a nun. Um, in subdivision, I made them both judges and gave them the same <laughs> name to be, uh, to be a dick, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but it, and the, and the, the true thing it from that's in the book is that they had a room that was dominated by a big dining table that was covered by a part a partially solved puzzle like the biggest cardboard puzzle i'd ever seen <laughs> and they very eagerly said to me before i even put my bags down you can come downstairs anytime and work on the puzzle i can't believe that's the real part i mean <laughs> isn't that crazy i thought you were gonna yes. say there was this accident and i you know i vibed <laughs> off of that for a while <laughs> no. luckily there was no real accident it was the puzzle and um i found this hilarious um and uh i emailed i can't remember who it was uh, but I emailed a friend about this and I, it's basically the first line of the book is what I said to them. Uh, and the response was, that sounds like the beginning of a novel. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes, it does. It sounds like the beginning of a novel by me, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea, I really like, one of my hobbies is photography. I like to go to a new place and just stalk around with the camera and document its ordinariness mm-hmm. and uh, like different different iterations of ordinariness in different places is for some reason very fun and satisfying to me. So I didn't know what this novel was going to be about, but I just had, I gave the, I gave the narrator amnesia and had the ladies give her a map of the town and there's set her loose to see what would mm-hmm. happen. Um, and very quickly I had an idea of what was going on and, and I went from there, but I really do like trying to bring a, an anomalous space or object to to life it's very fun mm-hmm. there still is that technical language though that then very specific language i mean weedy verge will be in my head forever now <laughs> it's you know i'd never encountered that and then i read it and i was like oh yeah i mean i've grown up around those and i did not you know i did not recognize them as such so there's definitely uh still a lot of that in there in a wonderful way there's um there's a thing in there. Um, I had a, when I was writing this book, I had a, a, a note on my phone that I would just add everything that seemed interesting to me in the couple of years I was pondering it and preparing to write it and then finally writing it. Um, I just threw it in there, even if it didn't seem to be important. Um, and one of them was I was like driving home one night and came across one of those. You know, this thing, it's like a traffic cone, except it's big. It's more like a barrel. Mm-hmm. And it has like this crazy reflective pattern on it that mm-hmm. almost doesn't seem real. It's so weird. <laughs> and I can't remember. I didn't put the name of it in the book, but it's. But it, they're in what, the book on the way to the city, right? The, yeah, the, they're in yeah. there. And, the road I, to the city. and, and it, as I passed it, it was like, it seemed like this object that was a kind of ghost almost. And mm. 
you know, there was some like caution tape fluttering around and there was some dirt on the ground. And I was like, why is that so, why do I find that so beautiful? <laughs> and I think it's just because it was so specific. It, it was just this little collection of prosaic objects that somehow felt meaningful. And yeah. if you're a novelist, of course, you can actually make it meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> do you often do that? Do you often ponder something you know that you're eventually going to write for a while before you sit down to actually write it? Sometimes. Um, I wrote Subdivision really fast, mm. the first draft, like mm. four months. Wow. Um, but I had thought about it for a while. I wrote like what I wrote the first 10 or 15 pages and then set them aside and did other stuff for a year or so. And that's when I gathered notes and ideas for, for it. Once I realized maybe there's a novel here, but what is, is it going to be about? And I just thought of all the stuff that I was obsessed with and, and bundled it in there. Um, so short fiction, I, I never do that. I just get an idea and I go for it. And maybe a third of the time I finish. And if I don't, I'm probably never going to go back. Um, but sometimes I do. Um, do you write a story all at once? Usually over a few days, yeah. First draft of a story. Not Again, not always. Sometimes I, it takes a while and I add just a little bit each day. But the usual thing is I just get it like an attack <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. and just go for it and get a really rough fast draft in a few days. Yeah, do you find that you lose momentum if you have to put it away for a little longer? Yeah. Yeah, that I can totally relate to that. And I, I was thought really, I was a hack. Yeah, I was really into like just a few weeks ago, I started writing a story about an, an old guy and his daughter and his granddaughter and the three of them living together and having lost a couple family members to COVID and it's mm. still the pandemic and the daughter, the granddaughter and the grandfather are hanging out together in, in a video game oh, well. and that's all they do all day. And the mom doesn't understand them. And I was so on it. Like, I was like, this is it. This is my next big story. And then like, I went, I went out away for the weekend <laughs> and I came back and I was like, eh. <laughs> so now it's like, I'm trying to re you know, I might never get the feeling back. I don't think it was because I went away for the weekend. I think I came to a stopping point and it was like, oh, I'll just pick it up when I get back. But I think the stopping point was the problem. I think that I didn't actually have an idea. I just had a situation, you know? Mm -hmm. So John, I, uh, after... Oh, no, go ahead. No, you keep going. Nope. It was just going to be a personal anecdote. Yeah, but I love those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. No, let's hear the personal anecdote. 100%. Nope. Now, you know what? I went away for the weekend, so it's gone. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> That's really not cool. She's brutal. Um, not cool. So after the initial 10 or 15 pages that you get down for subdivision, you're gathering, you're gathering all this, yeah. all this wonderful detail on your phone, you know, taking, taking time with it. When you actually sit down to begin drafting, are you just following sentence, sentence, paragraph by paragraph, kind of following yourself, you know, just where the story may take you or how much of this was outlined before. I'm just, I'm just so curious about like on a granular level, how yeah. this novel was drafted. At the beginning of my career, I outlined obsessively. Okay. I think because I was, I hadn't done it before and I wanted to sit down each day and have a list of tasks to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and the older I've gotten, the less I do that. And now I do literally nothing of that. I just, mm -hmm. I just sort of go for it um, off the top of my head every day. And it's not really off the top of my head because I've been living with my notes and the details. And, and, I, and as I move forward, I sort of think, oh, I guess I, I'll want her to go to this place. She's going to have to explore that. Um, it's, very, it's very much like when you, in a video game, when you... Um, when you find the beginning of like eight quests and you just get to decide which quest you want to go on next time you play mm -hmm. uh, in your quest list, I kind of have a mental list of this stuff has to happen at some point. Um, what, which one should I do next? So it's a bit of a mental outline, but, um, uh, and then, you know, I just consult my list of ideas and think, Oh, I'm going to get that item in there. Or, I want to get this concept in there. Um, once I realized what the backstory was, that there's a sort of tragic 
um, a sort of mysterious, tragic circumstance that brought the narrator to this place. Right. Um, I was like, that gave me this opportunity to bring elements of it into the novel disguised because the whole point of her narration is she she doesn't know what's going on because she doesn't want to know what's going on and the right. the job of the subdivision and the the judges is to persuade her to come to terms with it um and she's not ready to do it but the world which was created for her and by her in a way mm -hmm. um its job is to show it to her, right? So it mm -hmm. keeps giving her these hints. And it was really fun for me to think about how I could, I, I could slip this stuff into the, um, into the novel in a disguised fashion. I love that. Alex and I were talking beforehand about how free this book feels like mm -hmm. in terms of like it, it's, it's, it follows its own rules. Um, and it seems to correspond with what you're talking about that you just sort of you just went for it you know and you just had fun yeah and the um another inspiration for it was um uh my friend john is a novelist and he was describing a book of his that was about to come out uh, this is jonathan d um and he said that he he was saying oh yeah i'm really excited about this book i wrote it very quickly it was it was like a little wind-up toy and I just wound, wound it up and put it down and let it go. And I felt this, it, this deep envy. Yes. <laughs> and the novel that resulted, his last book is really good. I, I recommend it. But, um, but I was like, oh, I want a wind up toy. You know, I, I want that too. Um, and so this book became my wind up toy. It wasn't even, there was nothing more specific than that about what he said, but it made me realize like it could be small um and it could just march forward yeah and an earlier a, a very early attempt at this book had the backstory in it in flashbacks wow um, there were separate chapters where the stuff that happened in the past was in there and after doing a couple of those chapters i was like this is stupid and boring <laughs> i don't want to do this i want to i want to play with my toy yeah I, I think I that think... instinct was correct. I, I feel like that makes the the mysteriousness of it makes it more compelling and it makes it feel more satisfying when you know what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think by the end, you have a very good sense of, of what happened and it deepens um, the darkness that's in the book already. Um, and it deepens like the real, you know, the connection to reality. Yeah. Um, and I just, I want to, like for a second, just want to acknowledge that like, it's okay to write a book very quickly sometimes. <laughs> Cause mm -hmm. I think, you know, like the trope is, Oh, it's taken me years and I edited it and I revised it. And I think sometimes it can just be, it just completely pours out of you, you know, in this one fell swoop. I agree with you. Um, I mean, of course I do. Cause that's what happened to me, but, um, but other books of mine were not like that. And, and I feel like this is why most writing advice irritates me because so much of it is, well, here's how you do it. Right. And, and that, and the rule that has been generated applies only to one book that one person wrote right. that, yes. that in their mind is now the solution to, to writing. Right. Um, but the ways of actually getting yourself to the end of a manuscript and then revising the manuscript are entirely specific to you and the project and the, 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 the your life circumstances, what kind of time you have to do it. And, how free your mind can be. Um, so I was in a lucky position. It was the summer um, and my, I had a sabbatical coming up and I actually had some time to, to ponder. I was living by myself very briefly at this time. And um, there was no, I had very few obligations and it was, this is a very rare moment in my life that it was like this great open space that I could fill with this thing. And uh, I just did it all day long for, for three months, four months. Wow. Yeah. I will probably never, I will probably never have an opportunity like that again, but it was really great. <laughs> I guess you could have watched like Jerry Springer all day. So you, you'd capitalized on that opportunity. You'll always have that. <laughs> well, what I was doing the rest of the time, um, uh, 
uh, was playing video games, and I think that a lot of the <laughs> logic of video games made it into the. Uh, That's so funny that too. you that you say that because my son, my eight year old, just started playing this Lego video game. It's like mm -hmm. Lego City video game. Yeah. Um, and as I was watching him play it, I was like, God, I feel like I feel like this is like a J. Robert Lennon, like a subdivision type <laughs> situation, <laughs> because it's like it's, there's like ambient noise and he's walking around a city and he's trying to like figure out what to do next. And like sometimes you can break things and then they yeah. build themselves back up again. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm I'm did like. Did you do this based on a Lego video game? Not not a Lego video game, but one thing I, I really love is um you know every sort of open world video game has a map and you can roam all over the map, but the map has an edge and usually the the developers build in a lot of extra land on the other side of the boundary that you can't get to, but they build it there so you can see it, so the world feels infinite, right? Mm -hmm. But when you get to it, there's an invisible wall and something you stop walking and something appears on the screen sometimes it's like you can't go there <laughs> or right. you cannot leave the mappable nowhere. area you know um this is the world boundary or there's a you know some bits of assassin's creed where there's this crazy like uh like like flashing staticky literal boundary that fe that feels like the end of the world hmm. um and i i find this artifice really delightful and it's very applicable to literature. You know, a book is very finite. <laughs> there's, a, right. there's a limited number of words in it. It's an it's a self-contained object. Um, it has a beginning and an ending. And you you know you don't see the characters poop. You <laughs> you, you know you don't see them eat breakfast. Speak like, for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I see that. I see it. <laughs> um, I believe. You know, but there are things that a novel is never going to show you, and I. It's a convention, right? We're not supposed to think about those things, but I kind of enjoyed in this book the world announcing its limitations. You know, yeah. it's no different from a conventional novel, really, mm -hmm. uh, except that um, I kind of enjoyed talking about the the boundaries of things, like the the road to the city that is blocked, and the you know, at one point she tries to she tries to follow someone off the map, and a, a catastrophe occurs. Mm -hmm. How how mad were you when WandaVision stole this idea from you? Ooh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, never mind. Great. You've now spoiled it for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, we 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 canceled the the Disney Plus uh you know, my children my children are grown mm -hmm. uh and w there are only so many Disney movies we're going to watch, so um it seemed foolish to keep paying for it, but then as soon as I cancel it, it's like, "Oh, maybe we should <laughs> Maybe they're going to bring watch you back the parent trap again. <laughs> you know? So one of these days we'll, we'll hop back on and watch that. Yeah. John, when did you know that let me think was going to be released at the same time? What was uh, the impetus for that decision? I submitted them together um, to, to gray wolf, assuming that they would put out one immediately and one not immediately. Two, two years later, as as they do. Um, and then the, the other one the following year. Um, and to my surprise, they, they're like, no, let's do them together. They when when they first published me, I think in 2009, um, they published my novel Castle, but they also published pieces to the left hand, which had been published in uh, Britain um, years before, but had not found a US publisher yet. Hmm. Um, and they decided to bring them out together. And um, I think I don't think the sales are like high or anything, but pieces for the left hand sales are consistent. Like people continue to buy that book and occasionally talk about that book. And I think they were thinking, oh yeah, let's do it again. It's like a it's a little more than a decade later, um, and I've had a bunch of books with Gray Wolf, and they will do that magical thing they did back at the beginning where. They published a novel, a short novel, and a short a collect, short collection of short stories together as one sort of thing, um, and that's how that happened. the The collection I had some of that stuff I read I wrote before I wrote Piece of the Left Hand. Mm -hmm. I wrote a lot of it oh, before wow. before I wrote um, the stories in uh, not a lot of it, but some of it. Um, the stories in uh, See You in Paradise, which is a collection of like. Con more conventional length and form short stories 
Um, but I kind of knew I had all this stuff that had different concerns and was formally odd. Yeah. Um, and at some point it reached a critical mass. It started to generate its own heat, like a, like a mulch pile. (laughs) And I started dumping more stuff in it. I was like, Oh, you know what? This is a book. Now I'm going to write, I'm going to start writing to the pile. And, um, over three or four years, I, I would dump more stuff in there. The book was originally like twice as long and I I cut half of it. Um, uh, because some themes were emerging and a lot of the stuff didn't fit because much of it was, uh, just prompts, like experimental prompts I gave myself to, to, you know, break a, break a slump. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, ultimately, uh, my editor and I did manage to carve something coherent out of it. I think and I, I like the book. Oh yeah. I, I love this book and oh, thank you. it's, it's one of my, it's, my favorite collections have a quality of just the story to story. There may be, there may be groupings, there may be, there may be pairings and resonances, but there's also just dissonance and, and, you know, long stories, short stories, all that. I love just a varied collection. And this certainly is one of them. I, uh, (laughs) I think, I think most people would expect, you know, okay, uh, I got a story like The Loop. I have a story like Breadman, and maybe we'll get another ten more like that. And there's a collection, but the fact that you have, you know, stuff like uh, monsters and in darkness in here, I, I just I love it. It's a it's a it's a great one. So thank I'm, you. I'm very glad that it's formed the way it is. Is all I'm trying to say. I was really inspired by collections like um, collections like Barthelmay's. 40 stories and 60 Mm -hmm. stories or Lydia Davis's books, you know, Lydia Davis is, she's a serious lady. Like she, she writes philosophically and intellectually compelling fiction. And then suddenly there's a story that's just a a letter to a company that makes frozen peas (laughs) complaining about the graphic on the bag. Right. And I love that. And um, the sort of freedom that she claims right that she that she insists belongs to her that she gets to do that uh yes totally and uh, there's a story in um let me think that was uh um i have this assignment that i give my students which is the which is a lipogram you know you, you leave out the letter e I'm, i always make them write about a funeral because there's so many things about a funeral that have the letter e in them and the students have to scramble to think of other ways to say obvious things. They write a little one-page story without the letter E in it. And um, when uh, before my wife and I were married, she challenged me. She was at her – we were apart, and she was at her parents on uh, Passover. And they had this they had this uh, knife, this, like, you know, turkey slicing knife that came in its own box. And it had been hanging around the kitchen for 40 years. And, um, and it contained this little card – that was like an essay contest that you could send into the company. The company is, has been gone for decades, I'm sure, um, where you could send in an essay contest showing why you love the knife. <laughs> and <laughs> she suggested I write a, a lipogram about the knife. Oh, yeah, it's in there. <laughs> and it's and I, my editor was like, does this really belong in here, Sean? I was like, you're <laughs> damn right it does. <laughs> my how turkey you, knife story is definitely going in. How do you, like, decide how to place the stories when you're assembling your, you know, specifically this collection, how did you decide? This one was actually kind of, most of them, it's just like, uh, most of them, it's more, well, okay. Uh, So for Peace for the Left Hand, which was a hundred very short stories, kind of more monolithic than, than this collection. um, I just thrown them in there in a random order. I mean, Mm -hmm. I literally randomized them and I was thinking of um, of uh, Double Nickels on the Dime, the, the Minutemen album, which is like 50 really short songs. And there's a little note in the liner notes that's like, you should listen to these in a random order. Mm. And they actually recommended Shuffle and the, on when the CD version came out. And, um, and of course, my editor was like, no, <laughs> you can't <laughs> shuffle a book. Um, you should put these in thematic categories, and then you should write a little introduction to each to each category. There'll be like chapters. Um, and I was surprised to see that, yes, they did kind of fall into categories. So a similar thing happened with this book. Um, I, I realized that they corresponded to sort of stages of life, like 
birth, youth, love, insanity, and death. <laughs> wow. And uh, I actually had them. They were pretty. They're pretty strictly put into these categories, and I had titles for the sections. And um, my editor finally was like, "Let's get rid of the section titles and let's just shake it up a little bit." Like you can, you don't. It doesn't have to be that way. You're free, right? It will still have the ghost of the categories, but uh, but there will be little swerves away from from those categories. And that was really satisfying to me. It's like, okay, we're talking about insanity here. We're talking about madness, but here's a little treat, you know, here's a little <laughs> snack before you go on to the next, you know, bout with, with mental illness. Um, or, you know, not everyone has to die in this section. <laughs> we'll have a fun part. Um, so yeah, that was my, it's it sort of roughly arranged. And then at some point it became like, I got down to the, once I cut all the stuff I was going to cut, it came down to like, okay, the mood here, moving to the mood here is too abrupt. And I want to put something in, excuse me, in between there that, that gets you from A to B, A to C, right? I want you to put the B in. In other places, I, I explicitly wanted a, a jolt. Um, so it, there was, you know, I had the thing that only usually poets get to do, which is, printing it all out and putting them all over the floor, <laughs> you know, and putting them in an order. The, uh, the frozen pea story in this collection for me, John, the one that I'm really glad is in there and made me laugh was that the marriage point story, the exclamation point story. <laughs> That's the one when I reached it, I was just like, Oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, uh, that one made me laugh a lot. I don't remember how I came up with that couple, but, I wrote a couple of them was like, these are these people just delight me to no end. <laughs> what does it feel like to revisit your older stuff? You know, um, one of the really old ones was uh, Cottage on the Hill, mm -hmm. um, which had been published. There was a short lived magazine called Unstuck. Um, oh, yeah, that was great. I think they only put it like three issues, maybe. Mm, I don't know. But um they published that and then electric literature did it too as like a um what are the recommended reading mm -hmm. um and so and people that's one of the stories people remembered and asked me about so i went back to it and i was like oh, i don't like this um then i was like no i just i can just edit it and then i rewrote it and then i realized oh you know what this story is about going through life. So I can put a part of it in the beginning of the book and a part of it in the middle of the book and a part of it at the end of the middle and a part of it at the end. Um, and suddenly it became like this thread that ran through the entire book. So once I fixed the problems that I saw in the writing, um, I suddenly liked the way it lived in this collection. Um, so that was the kind of most of most of the, with most stuff it was like this old thing fits or it doesn't fit the end but that story was like this belongs in here in a different form and i just have to figure out where where it goes when i look back especially with my short fiction career the things i'm proudest of is when some weird person just asked me for something and i gave it to them for free and it ended up being kind of like a legendary thing <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I kind of learned this lesson from Steve Dixon, um, who died a couple years ago, who he just wrote a shit ton and anyone who asked him for a fiction, he would give it to him. Yeah. And my, my ex, Rian Ellis and I had a, a magazine together for a few years and we asked him for something and it was, he gave it to us and it was awesome. Wow. Uh, and I, and I, as I started to publish, I was like, I want to be, I want that kind of career where... Mm. I'm not fussy about where I send my stuff and who I, I, uh, and, and who I'm with on the page. Right. Because the people who are like you obscure someday will not be, and you won't be either. And it will be this kind of cool thing that you did a long time ago, um, before you knew it was cool, you know? And I, yeah. I think good, the, one of my favorite things about getting older as a writer is, is having those experiences in my past. 
it seems like the situation you have uh, with Grey Wolf now, John, is so well suited to that approach and kind of what you're looking to do in general with your fiction. Could you talk a little bit about maybe what your more early publishing career looked like as opposed to what it is now and, and what kind of your situation now allows you to do approach wise? Yeah. Um, and I like to talk about this. I know Alex, you have published a couple of books and um, you're probably, you know, wondering where your career is going. I think Lindsay, you published what flick four. Yes. Yep. Yeah. But it sounds like you're looking for a new house too. It's like, I, started out like I sold my first book to Riverhead when they were a new imprint at um, at Penguin, I guess, or Random House. I don't know. They weren't married yet, Penguin and Random House, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> and um, they dropped me. Like my, my second book, they clearly didn't like, but they published it anyway. Hmm. And then the third book, they just straight up rejected. They said it was too weird. And then I went to Holt. And then Holt rejected my next book. And then I went to Norton and Norton bought my next book, but then they dropped it because they were afraid they'd get sued over it. Um, and they didn't, they didn't pay me. Oh my God. Um, that was when I got my, my, the great teaching job I have now. So I got very lucky, but it was a moment where it's like, are you kidding me? Like, right. <laughs> like I can't not get that money. I did the work. <sighs> Oh. anyway but um and it was like i was beginning to feel like this idea of myself as someone who came came out of grad school immediately started publishing and was doing the you know taking my lumps so i could work my way up in the world i was actually working my way down oh my god selling fewer books each time and these new york commercial publishers would think Oh no, this book's pretty good. Like the last publisher just did it wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it turns out the problem was me <laughs> all along. <laughs> and, um, and then when I left Norton, uh, and I, and then I lost my agent as well and ended up hooking up with Jim and he's the one who said, uh, Jim Brutman, uh, the agent that Lindsay and I share, um, he said, I know you would like to get a nice big advance from a big publisher. Uh, and you deserve to. However, Grey Wolf Press in Minneapolis is making a big push right now to start publishing more books and making them more prominent. And they have a new national distribution and they have a good publicity team. And I think we ought to submit this book to them along with your, along with your old story collection. And um, I thought of it as a compromise at the time because the you know, they don't give huge advances. Mm -hmm. um, but at that point I had a job and I thought, okay, this is perfectly fine. You know, I'll do this for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and very quickly I realized like, no, I'll do this as long as possible. I don't ever want to be on the market again. <laughs> I love these people because they were publishing like 30 books a year. When it was your turn for your book to come out, they gave you their full attention that everyone there read it. <laughs> wow. Everyone there liked it. It's like th you call them on the phone and they pick up, you send them an email and they respond. And it's because they are nice people, smart people who like their jobs and have good taste. Mm -hmm. And they want to make sure that you, your work is as good as it can be. Wow. Um, and they actually care about it and they're not, you know, they're, they're, it's not like they have, <laughs> there was this moment on my first book tour, I met up with my publicist in Portsmouth, where is that, New Hampshire? Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, I had been, you know, they put me up in hotels and uh, on the tour, and I was always nervous that I was spending too much money. Like, can I order an appetizer <laughs> and then charge it to my room, you know? And I, I was like, I said to him, Michael, like the hotel I'm, I'm in, like last night, I had two <laughs> glasses of wine. And is that okay? And he said, John, do you know how much it costs for us to give Tom Clancy a helicopter for the weekend? What? We don't, we don't care about your glass of wine. Oh. <laughs> 
I was like, okay. Oh uh, waiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, next round's on him. Fucking Tom Clancy. Can do you think he's available for blurbs? <laughs> oh, I think what Tom? I think he's dead. Well, actually, he seems to have kept writing even despite having died. So probably. Oh, good. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'm gonna hit him up. But you know, even though that was really funny, and I was glad to get my glass of wine, it it was like, oh, you know, Grey Wolf doesn't have the budget. They sent me on a tour. Um, I'm you know I'm crashing with friends for the most part and driving a rental car, but it's so much more fun, and I don't worry about disappointing anybody. And um, when I and then I read in Minneapolis, and all this Grey Wolf staff shows up. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> They're the best. They're that the is best. one of the best literary cities. The the Twin Cities are yeah. like. Just so enthusiastic. Every time I've gone there to read, yep. it's been so Grey fun. Wolf, uh, Grey Wolf shares an, uh, an office space with uh, Milkweed. Uh, oh, or wow. they, they share a building. I think they're in the same building. And um, um, and those people are all really nice, too. And they really all feel like there's a that there's a local, like, intense commitment to putting out good books. That's amazing. And I feel like smaller presses are, are like you're saying, so much better at, like, thinking about where to send you and, and you know, like... Um, like generating excitement about a, a potential tour. Whereas I feel yeah. like sometimes the bigger houses are like, well, when are you coming to New York? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. wait, you don't live in New York, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, 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 there is a sense of, I had, I, I had some good experiences at the bigger publishers. My editor at Henry Holt was especially great. Uh, uh, Jim McCray, mm. but um but there was a sense when you talk to them of like preemptive disappointment, mm. there was a sense is like, oh, you know, oh the book's coming out in three months. There's no buzz. Like you, they wouldn't <laughs> say it, but as the, you came closer and closer to publication, they would get harder and harder to track down. Oh. And because they knew that it, a miracle was not about to occur. So they weren't going to put themselves behind it. Whereas I feel like smaller presses, I think Tin House is doing great work in this way mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Like they, they, no one is assuming a miracle is going to occur. They're going to promote the book and they like doing it because they like the book. Right. And it's you like know? something no they're all there. making together. <laughs> right. Like, you know, I think at a huge publisher, a commercial publisher, your editor likes your book for sure. Your editor's assistant likes your book. Um, maybe the publicist sort of likes your book or has read the first <laughs> chapter. The marketing team real really wishes that they could just place another full page ad in the New York Times book review oh. for whoever, James Patterson, right? It's like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the editor is the person who's like, Yes, I love to acquire these small books to go along with the big things that we published. And once you get to the people who actually need to make the money, they're like, yes, you are a distraction to us. And we really wish you would go away so that, mm. we, could, so that we could do the stuff we have to do, you know? And um, I'm, I'm really, it's really nice to be at a place with high literary expectations and low uh, profit expectations. Yeah. And I think especially if you're someone who has, who loves to write short stories and, and, you know, will continue to write short stories. The smaller presses, it seems, are just more uh, open to that. <laughs> you, you do not hear the heavy sighs. <laughs> it's like, oh, you got a story collection? Great. Mm. Let's rap about it. You know, they're they're all their all time bestsellers are like uh, Claudia Rankin, right? It's like, mm. yeah. <laughs> short stories are kind of like poems. Our bestseller. Oh <laughs> we'll publish that. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so John, coming from that kind of trajectory and experience, what do you tell your MFA students as they're graduating? What is the what is the kind of advice to obviously you can't say, you know, start at a big publisher and eventually work out and <laughs> find someone great and I hope it works yeah. out. What is what is kind of the what is the yeah. advice that is like something that you can actually give your students that is maybe useful. Yeah, I'm always and when like, he says students, he means me and him. Sure, yeah. yeah. I'm talking about uh, Lindsay Hunter and Alex Higgins. Yes. Yeah, I'm Please always help. like, around the time you turn 36, you want to have a big legal problem with your publisher where you end up, they will only let you talk to lawyers and you never talk to your editor again. That's what you want. <laughs> Perfect. I have two years. Um, 
No, I, it's actually, I'm really lucky to teach at Cornell, which is a, a well-heeled institution that is a pleasure to teach at. And because we have a good funding structure, we attract really, really good writers. And so we get to, we get to pick people who we can be really proud of when they leave our, our program. Mm -hmm. The problem is that occasionally s some of them do get famous, like <laughs> No Violet Bulawayo's book sold really really well, Tay Abrek's book sold really well, Ling Ma's book sold really mm -hmm. well recently. And so there is a sense, and it's not a crazy fantasy, that maybe I will be the next Cornell student who hits it out of the park right. and has a bestseller that gets made into a movie or a TV series or whatever. Um, and they probably won't be, but it you can't tell them that's never going to happen mm -hmm. and don't, you know. So um, I feel like I tell a lot of students, like, your cur even if you do well at first, and because everybody loves a first novel because all of the work is still ahead of you and you haven't disappointed anyone yet. Um, a lot of time when a, when a first novel really hits hard, it's almost impossible for the second one too because people think that the thing they saw in that book is you and it's actually just this tiny sliver of you. Um, you have all kinds of uh, obsessions and skills and quirks that are going to emerge over a long career, but you have to commit to having that career. You have mm -hmm. to be willing to keep writing uh, even when your publisher who you know made you all this money for your first book rejects your second because it's not commercial enough. Because um, that's the thing that happens. Uh, and you know, some writers of course do have good long careers with big publishers, um, but it, you know, writing is not that lucrative. Mm -hmm. And um, even for successful writers, it's not that lucrative. Or even if it's temporarily lucrative, it's not gonna be in five years. You know, mm -hmm. There's just a handful of writers who write the kind of stuff my students do, who just have hit after hit. I mean, I haven't had any, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Tay is the closest thing so far. Uh, she's got a great career, um, but also, her imagination is really wild, and she's going to do all kinds of different things, and she's not going to write bestseller after bestseller just because the public is fickle and the publishers are fickle. Um, but that's a good thing. You you should be attracting different people with every book, even if it's just 10 people, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, I had a book almost nobody of mine has read. Piece, uh, not uh, It's a on the night plane it, came, it mm -hmm. came out the first week of september 2001 oh my <gasps> god the the terrorist <sighs> attacks happened while i was on a plane oh my god oh my god heading to my first book tour date oh my <laughs> god and then i got off the plane and i went to the men's room and then i got an egg mcmuffin and i came back to the united <laughs> counter and all uh, i don't mean to laugh but it's, it, it wasn't funny at the time at all of course not yeah i come back to the united counter and I look up at the board and the flights just say canceled, 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 canceled. Oh, and I go to the, ask them what happened and they're all crying. And oh I was my like, gosh. oh shit, something happened. Um, and the book disappeared, right? And of course, the last thing in the entire world that you can do is complain that your book failed because of the terrorist attack. Oh my God. Right? But... Um, these, you know, you you have all kinds of failures for reasons you can't predict, and your career is not on a on rails. Um, it's a weird hike through the wilderness, and you have to kind of enjoy having it, even when no one is paying attention to you. Um, I feel like the stuff I do, where I assume no one's paying attention, and so I have a good time doing it is often the stuff that that people remember um, or that becomes successful in some obscure way. And I feel like I'm 50. My career is now starting to feel like it has some richness and depth to it and that mm -hmm. I've done a lot of different stuff and it's all out there. It's not famous, like people aren't necessarily reading it right now, but it exists. And if you like something of mine and you, 
type my name into Google, you'll find a bunch of stuff that's different from the thing you just read. And maybe you'll be stoked about that. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember I'll being, say, uh, yeah. when I told my husband you were coming on, he was like, because oh! <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> he loved Broken River. Yeah, he's a big Broken River fan. Yeah. Oh, great, he was like, great. wait, what? And he literally just told his mom tonight to go read it. So big J. Robert Lennon <laughs> fans sweet. in this house. Thank you. No, I, ca I can't thank you enough for that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, that's what I t that's what I tell the students is that you're like, take take the long view, um, and you know you're you will have some successes and you'll have some failures, and even the successes might be small. But it's like you just have to enjoy doing it and look like you enjoy doing it, so people see you enjoying it and they're like, "What's that guy doing? That looks right. interesting," you know. Yeah. And it can be really hard to remember that it's yours, right? Like it's your career. It's your writing. Yeah. And I found students who have early success become very naturally, um, but in my mind, un unwisely um, concerned about continuing to make a good impression. If you're a good student, <laughs> you might make a writing career might be hard for you because you're accustomed mm -hmm. to pleasing people, mm -hmm. right? Pleasing the authority figures. But it, in publishing where money is changing hands, um, even commercial publishing is full of very smart, cool people who have published great books. So I'm not knocking on them in general. Um, but the, you know, they, the, the bottom line means something and it, and it gives them, gives your editors power or takes away their power, depending on what sales are or what trends are going on. And you can't predict what they're going to like. You can't predict what other people are going to like. All you can do is figure out what you like to do and do it super hard. And it, you know, the, the hope is that people will recognize the joy you take in creating it. Mm -hmm. Well, both these books have that in spades, John. That's kind of what Lindsay and I were talking about before you came on. I mean, oh, guys, subdivision. I mean, I was telling Lindsay when the courthouse was first described and you and you see the dead tower, I I stopped and I was just like, I bet John fucking had so much fun doing it. It's just <laughs> yes. like it's so obvious. I mean, it's just it's yeah. there. <laughs> you know where that came from was uh, when AWP was in Minneapolis and. Um, that you know how Minneapolis has all these, uh, or was it AWP? Maybe it was this a ABA, some bookseller thing. Anyway, one of the times I was in Minneapolis for some literary thing, a lot of the buildings are connected by these skyways. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I just, you know, was like wandering around through them, trying to find my way across town through the skyways, which is very inconvenient. It's just to keep you warm, but <laughs> it's actually really confusing if you don't live there. And um, went to the end of one. It was like, it was blocked off with like, <laughs> with like a sawhorse, and like beyond <laughs> there was a construction site, and there's guys in hard hats in there. And I was like, well, I guess I'll work here. Guess I'm not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found I found my new job. So when I was uh, thinking of someplace for um, for the narrator of this book to work, I was remembering this weird sensation of like being in this bustling convention center and then going through this glass tunnel to a to a wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you is exactly right, Alex. It's like yeah, I would work in the wasteland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because then you would stumble upon the guy doing the quantum tunneling. <laughs> How could you miss that? <laughs> that would be my hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I. Uh, I was telling my kids who was going to be on tonight and my eight-year-old was like, oh, that book, you loved that book. So oh, great. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank God, you so my much pleasure, for you guys. All the advice that you just poured onto us. Um, Some of it is coming directly from this uh, mustard jar full of whiskey that I've been drinking while I've talked <laughs> to you. Well, <laughs> we receive it even more heartily then. <laughs> um and uh, as established we love you and oh we um, love you too we meaning me i i call myself we you and your whiskey you yeah. and your whiskey love us <laughs> um, yeah you guys and... are great i i'm i'm delighted to be on one of my favorite literary podcasts so thank oh, you oh man thank well, you thanks john appreciate it so much that was pretty special
I, I feel like I needed to hear everything he said. Like being rejected as much as I have been rejected, it's still different every single time. And it's still like, it's, it's surprising how quickly you can, you can sort of forget your ownership, you know, like you can forget, like I, like we're, I'm, we're going through the submission process right now. Um, I know, you know, this Alex, I'm just saying this for our listeners. (laughs) Um, I had to like, I had to really, cause I'm, I'm working on another novel now or I was, and, um, so the novel that's out on submission is the one I wrote before. And I had to like, really like literally I was talking to myself at the playground, trying to remind myself where I came from when I wrote that thing and what I was trying to do there. And because for a few days I had forgotten because there was, there's been so many like, nah, this is, you know, like, Oh, and it's, it's a, it's also a mind fuck. Cause you'll hear like, wow, what a brilliant voice. Wow. I love this so much. I related to so much of it. This is so good. It's going to land somewhere, but not for, not with us. And so you tell yourself like, okay, well, it, then it will land somewhere, but, but maybe they're not really <laughs> like liking it that, liking it that much. So then like, it's like John was saying, you start to listen to others instead of listening to like you, you know, anyway. So that's just something that I, that I have to relearn, you know, and like, that's just how it goes as a writer. Um, and before this, before I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be an actress. So I feel like, like, what is wrong with me that I want rejection so much in my life? But it is, it's just a part of it. I saw the other day on, on Twitter, a bunch of like well-known writers were talking about how they, they often get rejected even now. So it happened. I saw that too. I, um, it was like Roxanne Gay and who else was yeah. talking? Yeah. I can't Amber remember. Amber Sparks. Yeah. 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 Um, and some other people were talking about, oh yeah, I get rejected and it hurts and um. But the one thing that always makes me feel better is writing is just Mm -hmm. going back and, and, and just doing like writing anything. Um, Because you have to like, remember, you have to remember like who the fuck you are, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're not going to get rejected. I don't want you to worry. (laughs) I don't want you to worry. Cause I don't. Well, it's funny because, you know, this, like with a novel and like a normal submission process with an agent, like an agented submission process. I have never gone through that. I have dealt with a ton of rejection for short stories. And yeah. like when I, when I teach the little bit of teaching I've done, one big thing I do is I, I show my students like my full rejection list for the years 2014 and 2015. Hmm. And it's like, I think close to 400 submissions over the two years for seriously for now that's for like every story that was in Cardinal. And oh I sent gosh. it, I sent each one to maybe like six or seven places. And then some of them I sent more places. And I think out of all those stories, you know, it's not every single one that was in Cardinal because some of them were published before. I think it's only around like seven acceptances. Oh my God. And the places aren't big, you know? Yeah. I think mm-hmm. the biggest place is maybe like, you know, like one of them ended up at recommended reading, which was really cool or, you know, but like, we're talking about places like pink or mm-hmm. like, you know, things like that, like nice online journals, whatever. We're not talking about Granta or the New York or mm-hmm. anything. So the it's at every level is all I'm trying to say. And that if you, you know, what John's talking about, what you are going through right now, what I'm about to go through. It's like, it's that every, it's that the the stakes change because obviously when you're sending to online journals, you know, maybe you'll get sent a t-shirt or 20 bucks or nothing, usually nothing. And it feels really different to have 10 friends excited about it as opposed to like actually making money or, Mm -hmm. you know, getting a, a review somewhere huge or whatever, but it's, it's kind of that way the whole way. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I loved that. <laughs> I loved what John was saying was just that he really is kind of on the other side of it. And you and I started this whole like conversation tonight when it was just you and me talking about like, the joy we saw in these books legitimately Mm -hmm. that's where we started and that's really where john came back to like hey i am writing the books i want to write and uh yeah and it's funny to hear like the hell that he went through on multiple 
occasions, you know, right. and like, this is, this is, you know, like my first real hell. Cause I've been, I've been really lucky, um, you know, previously with the editor that I had at, um, FSG, Emily Bell. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm always tread like treading the line or whatever, balancing the line of like, you should feel your feelings about this and the other side of it, which is, well, fucking buck up and just keep working, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I go back and forth, but no, I, I, one of the things that's been great is these conversations I've been having with my editor or my, sorry, my agent and um, like hearing someone say back to you what you wanted your book to be and what you know your book to be and like really understanding what it, what it is um, and seeing really clearly, you know, its potential. So I'm just like, I, I feel like that has been a really great aspect of this whole thing. Like, cause you really, you, you need to be able to, to talk to these people in your life that are, you know, advocating mm-hmm. for you. And, yeah. um, so anyway, so that's been good. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Good things are going to happen. I just knocked my fake wood again. I just finished reading Claire Beam's The Illness Lesson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you. Uh, I saw your tweet about that. I see that. I've been seeing that book everywhere. Um, yeah, I I had asked on Twitter for recommendations for books about enraged women. This was mm-hmm. even before the rejection started. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that book came up a few times, so I finally. And then I think I saw um, Richard Mirabella talking about it, and that put me over the edge. Um, oh my god! If you haven't read it, you should read it. I, I haven't read it. Yeah, I gotta pick it up believe what i was reading um really really enjoyed it that's my book rec for the week awesome are you reading i have been reading way less i have i stopped with the audiobooks without even thinking about it mm. i think because i wasn't listening to enough music and i was feeling crazy yeah you know what that's like like when you do, i yeah. feel like if i don't listen to enough music i like feel fucking like a crazy person mm-hmm. and so i needed more music in the car and uh i've just been reading john's books recently which i definitely recommend um but yeah no i haven't i haven't been reading quite as much um i was gonna i forgot to congratulate john for knowing the word for literally everything (laughs) Mm -hmm. which i feel like is the highest compliment i can give any writer i think i've complimented (laughs) Alyssa nutting in the same way before Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. um because he just everything is so precise his precision is truly monumental Yes, but also you don't get lost in it. I mean, you're just, right. you're with them. It's not for its own sake. It's not like a, right. you know, a flex or whatever, as they could <laughs> no, say. it's not a flex. <laughs> oh, fucking John, I was flexing. <laughs> but oh, yeah, that's man. it. Yeah, that's it. Um, Onward and downward. <laughs> put, that on, put that on a shirt onward and downward <laughs> i'm a writer but onward and downward there we go all right bud talk to you, See you later when i talk to you bye bye i'm a writer but is recorded by alex higley and me Lindsay hunter in our respective basements because there's a pandemic out there please wear a mask yeah, yeah, yeah. editing by Lindsay hunter music by max loop